Well, how are we doing today? All right. Beautiful frosty morning out there. Love it. You walk out of the house in South Dakota, those rare days when you have that beautiful white frost on the trees and everything. And what I love the most about frost is you don't have to scoop it. <laughs> It's not like you have to get up three hours early and take an eight-horsepower machine and two tanks of gas to get it out of the driveway, so that's pretty cool. Uh, everybody survived uh, another Thanksgiving. That's good. A good good meal, good food, good friends, good family. Yeah. <laughs> well, how apropos, because today we're going to talk about guilt and shame. <laughs> We don't always plan it this way around the holidays, but personally, I couldn't think of a better topic to land on in the middle of the holidays than talking about guilt, ironically, because uh, unfortunately, the holidays often seem to be full of uh, negative emotions, negative feelings, challenges with friends and family, and uh Oftentimes, the problem with holidays, especially the religious holidays, is the fact that there are so many opportunities for us all to come under attack and have our lower natures get our heads screwed up. So hopefully uh, talking about this will take a load, be a load lifting and not a load leaving thing. And uh, and I'm just always anxious to talk about this particular topic because it is something that unfortunately is very familiar to me, like maybe all of us. Uh, one of the first things I put in our worship bulletin today was uh, uh, in Luke 5.8. There's a great uh, part in there about Peter's first ever encounter with Jesus Christ. And as soon as he realized that there was something special about Jesus, how Jesus was, uh, you know, actually godly, his first response, and I can relate to this, wasn't to embrace God or to run towards him, but just the opposite, to hide from him, to say, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And isn't that just the truth, that the more that we get around something that is good or holy or true, the more it seems to illuminate our own weakness or our own badness. And our initial response is often to avoid what turns out to be our only solution, to run from God instead of towards him. And that's really sad, but it's also very human. And I think that lays a good foundation for what we're going to be talking about today. Just to, as to kick this thing off to define our terms, there's what I like to call the triple whammy of feelings and emotions we get in regards to this topic. They're guilt, shame, and remorse. The easiest definition, and we've said this before up here, but the easiest definition that I have for those three words is to get our heads around them. Guilt is often a feeling we get because of things we do. Shame is often a negative feeling we get, not just because of what we do, but because of what it makes us become. Remorse is a feeling we get that when the blinders come off, we look back in hindsight and realize what we could have or should have done instead after it's too late. So, for example, 
If I tell a lie, I feel guilt because I lied. I feel shame because now I am a liar. And I feel remorse because once those blinders come off, I look back and go, gosh, I wish in hindsight I just would have told the truth. I feel guilt because uh, perhaps I, I stole something, so I feel guilt about stealing. I feel shame because now I am a thief. And I feel remorse because when the blinders come off, I go, gosh, you know, I really didn't need this thing that bad anyway. Or if I did need it, I wish I would have bought it instead of stolen it. Uh, we feel guilt because perhaps we've committed adultery. We feel shame because now we are adulterers. And we feel remorse because in hindsight we realize uh, uh, that, it, we that we wish we would have remained faithful because it didn't give us what we wanted really anyway. It didn't produce the happiness or the peace that we were promised in our lying head. So with that understanding, we can start to look at some of the, the negative feelings like guilt and shame that we experience throughout life. And I think one of the things that I got to thinking about in this topic, anybody remember those psychology word games they used to play, word association, I think they call it, where uh, the psychiatrist would say a word just to see what the first thing was you said in response. You know, those were always fun and kind of telling, weren't they? You know, so... For instance, some, somebody might say happy, and if you were a happy person, you might say something happy. Happy clowns, happy balloons. Or you might say the opposite if you're more of a contrary person. Happy, sad, good, bad. Uh, somebody might say cow, and I would say steak. <laughs> Pig, bacon. <laughs> uh, because I like food and it's the holidays. Uh, somebody could say car, and I would say 1969 Mach 1 Mustang with the uh, Super Cobra Jet 428 and the drag pack option with positive traction. <laughs> Can't just say one word for that, <laughs> but I'm a motorhead. Uh, and unfortunately, if someone were to say the word God, the first thought that would come into our mind, the first word for so many of us might be guilt. Or conversely, if someone said the word guilt, the first word to pop in our head might be God. Because everybody just knows that God and guilt go together like chocolate and peanut butter, right? Isn't God the source of all guilt everywhere since the dawn of time? The right answer to that is no. As it turns out, guilt is not necessarily a product of God's spirit so much as guilt is produced by a thing that we call our conscience. One of the biggest mistakes we can make in spirituality is to connect our conscience with God's Spirit and assume that they are exactly the same thing. We can make that wrong assumption that that inner voice that we have in our head is God within. And his job internally is to act like 
a miniature cop in our head or a miniature parent or some disciplinarian whose 24-hour-a-day job is to point out every rotten thing we think, say, or do and then to provide punishment for it. If we fall into that trap, if we believe it, then obviously we could never grow spiritually because that's the exact kind of foundational belief that ends up screwing up every aspect of our life. And if we conclude that guilt and shame are good things, necessary things that we should always embrace, then unfortunately a foundational belief like that is always going to lead us down a dead-end road. So this leads to the question then, what exactly is conscience and where exactly does it come from? One of the true things about our conscience, unfortunately some people associate that with God because there's also a term called conscious, meaning awake or aware. And when people use the term God conscious, they mispronounce it God conscience because they think conscience is the same thing, and it's not at all. One of the main sources of our conscience is historical. It comes from family. Now, I hesitate to talk about family and church, especially during the holidays, unless I'm kind enough to add the word dysfunctional. (laughs) If you're like me, I used to go to church, and one of the things I hated about some churches on the holidays was they always focused on high ideals, and they would talk about families and God's ideal for perfect families and had happy families. I hated that. Because I was single for many years and felt very lonely, very lonely and alone. And I would just, especially during the holidays, anything having to do with healthy, happy families just would make me instantly tune out. (laughs) So it was a lot more refreshing when I got into more real circumstances. And they'd talk about real things and the pain and the challenges and the dysfunction of families. But just at the risk of that, just to be of the risk of being insensitive, just briefly, the, the ideal for family, when God created them, the idea made sense because I, the family was a unit where people, kids, could learn something about God, could experience a sense of how God himself operates. Now, part of that is for the parent side, where you actually participate in the act of creation. When you can bring life into this world, you instantly get a sense of how God feels. Because God deals with a lot of self-will run riot people. That makes a lot of sense when you have children, and all of a sudden you see things through God's eyes, from his perspective, because You love these kids like God loves us, and you are forced to watch these kids do dumb things. (laughs) And you could stop them, but that's not always your job because they need to learn some lessons. It's been said that lessons are what we get in life when we don't get what we want. It's very true. And When we have children, we see things through God's eyes, and we start to understand 
what a challenge it is to always influence without resorting to control. God is not a control freak. Sometimes we wish he was, <laughs> but he's not. People have self-will just like children. So the way that God introduced things like love and grace on the one hand and law on the other was it's God can do it in one person, but in a family it really I, the ideal was to have two different people that could model God's ideal. And that's why in, a, some, in families the ideal was to have two parents instead of one. Traditionally, a mom and a dad, where one could be the disciplinarian to introduce law, to have rules, to enforce those rules, to have punishment when things go wrong. So, you had law on the one hand, but you also had love. And through the other parent, you could have things modeled like love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And it's through the two-parent system that you could have both. Now, unfortunately, when there's one parent, you have to wear both hats, and that can get a little schizophrenic at times, where you try to be both the one modeling mercy, and to also enforce rules and discipline. So it really becomes a challenge. I read a statement one time that I really loved. It says that a mother's love is freely given. A father's love is earned. And that made sense to me because not every family is like that. In some, it's the female that takes on the disciplinarian role and the father's that takes on more of the nurturing role, and nothing wrong with that. You know, we're just talking briefly about the high ideals before we get into the real realities of it, how these things often go off the rail. But it's a great ideal in the respect that some, sometimes you need that unconditional love. But that alone leads to a type of grace where there are no rules. The whole thing is a free-for-all, and nobody learns anything. But on the other hand, if it all gravitates towards the other extreme of law and punishment and judgment and discipline, that's not healthy either. And some of us have grown up in very liberal homes and some in very legalistic homes, but it's the real challenge is finding the, that right balance, isn't it? where you can experience both. And the problem in this world, when you get into the realities, is none of us has really fully experienced that in this world, in this life. At best, all families are dysfunctional because they are operated by human beings. There's the problem right there. <laughs> Because we all have defects, we all have weaknesses. To that degree, we manifest qualities not only in ourselves, but we inflict those same qualities into our children. It's inevitable. So to one degree or another, what we learned at home about God is often through our parents. And that's why by the time we become adults or we get to church and the first thing you learn about God is our Father, that can make a lot of us cringe, can't it? Ooh, another dad. And it can create a lot of fear if we had bad daddy. 
and we hear of God as a parent, and we had bad mothers or bad grandparents. It really can affect not only how we feel about ourselves, but it can really affect what's called our conscience. Because we all have this standard built into us, hardwired, where we're constantly deciding what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. And a lot of our conscience is not piped in from God. We think it is. But it's really piped in through our history, through our parents, through our upbringing. And beyond that, we went to school, and we have schools that teach us their own version of what's good and bad and what's right and wrong, and that all gets filed away. And then as we go on a little further, there's other environmental things. There's cultural things. For instance, the culture that we're raised in can often be the deciding point between what we think is good and acceptable and what's unacceptable. A simple example of that is the foods we eat. There's some cultures that don't bat an eye about eating things that we call pets, <laughs> like Dogs and cats, it just, it makes you cringe in, if you're not of that culture. Or horses. I love horses. They are some of the most intelligent, majestic creatures. And there's cultures where it's perfectly acceptable to eat them. <laughs> but you know, that's just a cultural thing where, uh, conversely, there's a lot of cultures that don't eat pork. And the idea of eating bacon would make them cringe, which Seems a little insane to me, <laughs> but that's just me. But to them, it would be, oh, my God, how can you eat that? So that's an example of conscience that is piped in through a culture. There's still other opportunities where we just make stuff up as we go along. <laughs> we can just assume that some things are right or wrong, and then we feel guilty. And you see, this is the problem with all conscience is we operate according to these simple beliefs and feelings, and we never stop to question them. We never stop to ask ourselves that great question, what is the source of my information? I feel bad about this, but should I? I and Or even worse, I feel good about doing this other thing, but should I? So once we realize how deceptive the human conscience can be, hopefully it frees us up a little bit to think about things that we normally don't think about. And isn't it true that so oftentimes the course of our day is determined by some of the littlest feeling, the littlest jabs of pain, where we can go through a day and we intend to go this way, and then one little kick, and oh, for instance, sometimes it's fear. We can be going through our day and we plan, think about doing something, and we plan on doing it, and then we get just the littlest tinge of fear. Oh, but what if? You know, I should call that person. Oh, what if I interrupt them? What if they trip going to the phone to answer it and fall down the stairs, and then they're going to blame me? <laughs> I always have – that's why I hate the phone. I hate calling people. I always have this vision in my head. I'm going to call them, and I'm going to – they're going to answer and find out it's just me. And then they're on the other end uh, rolling their eyes and doing that. 
<laughs> that's just piped in. I, that's why I don't want to call him because I don't want to be that guy that interrupts somebody doing something fun and Debbie Downer calls. <laughs> hey, it's me. Oh, crap. <laughs> but that's an example of how just the littlest twinge of fear or the littlest twinge of of anger or the littlest twinge of guilt or shame can make us change direction. It reminds me of one of the object lessons that God gives us through nature. You know how you tie a baby elephant up? They use a piece of rope and a stake in the ground of sufficient strength where that baby elephant can't pull the stake out of the ground or break the rope. So they test it a few times, and once they realize they're tied up, they resign themselves to the fact that they can't get away. Now, do you know how you tie a mature elephant up? By using exactly the same thing. Now, I would think, well, the bigger and stronger the elephant gets, now you need chains about this big around because they're strong. and You need a stake set in concrete that goes down about four feet because an elephant could pull anything out of the ground. But you don't need that. All you need is the same exact rope and stake that they used when they were a baby elephant because once they realize that they can't get away, they'll never test it again. So that they could easily just walk away anytime they wanted to. They just will never try it. So that bondage that they're in is an illusion. It doesn't matter, though, that it's an illusion because it's real to them. And how many of us are held in bondage with imaginary chains? We're Locked in prisons where we don't realize we have the key. Is that an eagle song? <laughs> it's a good song. Uh, or that we're the warden of that prison, and we could walk out at any time. The door is not locked. But we're not even going to test it because it used to be locked. And that's the way another object lesson from nature mentioning horses. How you can lead a big, strong horse just by a little tug on the rein to get it to stop, or just a gentle turn of its head to get it to go a different direction. And that's another great object lesson of how our conscience works, just the simplest little tug. So it's not even a fear of tremendous, overwhelming pain or punishment. Just the littlest twinge of that can make us stop dead in our tracks or go a whole different direction. And with that in mind, of all the different things that go into making our conscience. And the final one is religious. Because we can, a lot of our conscience is also shaped by various religions. And different churches all have different rules and regulations, things you better feel bad about and things that you better feel good about. And that's another element that goes into shaping our conscience. Where sometimes we're taught that thing, these, here's a list of things that we don't do. And some of those aren't in the book. <laughs> but as long as you assume they're wrong, we, we act accordingly. Or at least we feel accordingly. So, the Bible talks in here about three different kinds of conscience. One of them, they talk about a weak conscience. Uh, 
I like that term weak. It reminds me of uh, uh, one time I had a weak circuit breaker in my house. The problem with that thing is it assumed that there was too big of a load when you'd plug certain things in and it would trip. So it tripped way too easily and tripped way too often. And at first, you assume, wow, I kicked the circuit breaker off. Maybe the motor's going out on this vacuum cleaner, or maybe this thing is drawing too much power, and you'd start to look at the different appliances you plugged into it. And eventually, it became clear there's nothing wrong with the appliances. It's just a weak circuit breaker, and it needed to be replaced. See, a lot of people have what's called a weak conscience, and it's the same thing. Some people are really touchy. They have huge lists of rules and regulations in their heads, a lot of do's and don't do's. And it's so easy for people to feel bad about simple things they shouldn't feel bad about. And one of the main problems with a weak conscience isn't just that those people spend most of their lives feeling miserable, but it makes them very vulnerable to manipulation. It seems like for every person with a weak conscience, there's a whole row of people lining up to take advantage of them. I used to be one of those guys that couldn't say no. And I would agree to so many things and get so overburdened, and then I'd beat myself up for that. And it was so easy to manipulate me. Salesmen loved me. Because I want them to like me. (laughs) I don't want to disappoint them by not buying this thing I don't need with money I don't have. So that was just an example of how we have a weak conscience. But the weakness isn't manifested in weak as in it doesn't work, just like that circuit breaker. It worked too good, too well. And that's what made it weak. It was overactive, not underactive. There's also such a thing as an underactive conscience, and at the extreme, the Bible talks about people that have hardened hearts and seared consciences, sociopathic, wicked people out there, that they don't feel bad about doing things, and they should. (laughs) I think we all have dealt with some people like that, where you think, how can you not? feel bad about the things that you do. That's the problem with conscience. The wrong people feel guilty. And those people have a spiritual condition, just like the people with overactive consciences do. And what we're going to find out is, uh, ironically, there's the same solution for both. And then the Bible also talks about a conscience that's good or clear. And the mistake we make there is that the only way to obtain a clear conscience is by doing everything right, by being holy and pious and just by being so kind and loving that we never do anything wrong. And then we have a clear conscience. But the word clear really doesn't mean that it never goes off or that we never feel bad but rather that when it does, we do the right things to clear it. In that respect, it's kind of like a check engine light in your car. Everybody hates it when they come on, but you thank God they come on. (laughs) 
because you need to know if something's wrong under the hood. Now, just because it comes on, the solution is not to put a piece of tape over it. <laughs> Here's some good advice. <laughs> or punch it out with a screwdriver. <laughs> Turning the light off doesn't make the problem go away. But you need to clear that code by getting in there and reading it, seeing what's wrong, and then fixing the problem. And once you fix it, the light goes off and everything's good again. That's an example of how conscience should work. And that's where, as we get into this a little deeper and start to understand that just because we feel bad or good doesn't necessarily mean that we're receiving right information, that what we need to look at then is where exactly are we wrong about being wrong? Where is, is it possible that we have been deceived? There's a great step in 12-step recovery. It's called Step 10. It says we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. At first, I thought, how many notebooks am I going to fill up on this one? Because <laughs> at first, I was not wrong about anything, so that's simple. How many notebooks? None. <laughs> I'm not wrong. And when you start to realize you are wrong a lot, your pendulum swings to the opposite extreme. And I could fill up many notebooks. How many things I'm wrong about? I'm wrong about everything. And then as more time went on and I started to get a little more in tune with what they were talking about, I finally got it down to two things. All my life, if you really boil it out, I have been wrong about two simple things, my problems and my solutions. <laughs> I've spent a lifetime diagnosing myself and others and trying to figure out what's my problem. Because I used to have people that would walk up and ask me what my problem was. <laughs> they would say things to me like, boy, what's your problem? <laughs> They were very keen to realize I had one, <laughs> and I, I would go, huh? I don't know. Today, I can tell you exactly what my problem is. My problem is twofold. I am not so good about diagnosing what the real problem is, and even when I'm right in the diagnosis, I am horrible at figuring out what the solution is. And those are the two things that I'm often wrong about. I often thought that, what's my problem? Them. <laughs> my problem is him. My problem is her. My problem is these people and these situations. Th those are my problems. And what's my solution? Well, I had a whole list of bad solutions for that. And a lot of the solutions that I had were even deadlier than the original problems were. And that's where some of the bad solutions that we get into when we're dealing with conscience, one of the solutions, because we don't like it when our conscience goes off, we don't like to feel guilt and shame and remorse. So what that leads some people to do, it leads us into perfectionism. Okay. I learn now that I feel bad when I do something wrong, so I'm just not going to do anything wrong. 
And that's where a lot of times we gravitate towards perfectionism. We're going to do things right or not do it at all. <laughs> I've got two speeds, darn good and screw it. <laughs> if I'm going to do it, it's going to get done right eventually, <laughs> or I'm not going to do it at all. I'm just not going to deal with it. But perfectionism is one of the solutions for that little tug of the reins for guilt. I hate feeling guilty, so I'm going to focus on never being wrong. I'm going to try doing everything perfect. Good luck with that. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? And perfectionists are magnets for guilt, shame, and remorse. And that perfectionism can lead to another bad solution, which is overachieving. If I feel bad about saying no to somebody, God forbid, that means to get rid of the bad feelings and avoid the guilt, I just have to say yes to everybody. I have to agree to everything and try being all things to all people. And that doesn't work either, does it? Because then we end up running ourselves into the ground trying to please everybody, falling into that people-pleasing, and it doesn't make those bad feelings go away, does it? Now you ironically have more things to feel guilty and ashamed of because no human being can keep all of those plates spinning. Another example of a bad solution for conscience is uh, instead of not being wrong, I'm going to go tweak it a little bit and always be right. <laughs> and that leads to a great, Ability at rationalization and justification. The word rationalize, the root of that is the word rational. When we rationalize, what we're really doing is giving a sane, logical reason for doing an insane, crazy thing. <laughs> but I'm going to rationalize it. I'm going to say, yes, this was the right thing to do. This makes sense, and here's why. The word justification, on the other hand, the root of that is the word justice. And that's where I give a good reason for doing a bad thing. I'm going to justify my actions, justify my behavior by excusing them under the ba banner of, this is the right thing to do, they had it coming. <laughs> that's where where other people in life spent a lifetime trying to get ahead in life, I never once remember trying to get ahead. I spent my life trying to get even. <laughs> I just wanted to get even with people because I thought once I got even with them, the anger would go away and the guilt would go away and I wouldn't have to feel bad anymore. But that process of rationalizing and justifying so many of my behaviors I finally had to realize it was based on a convoluted system of right and wrong. A third bad solution we fall into is don't do anything. And the easiest way of doing that, if you don't want to feel guilty, just avoid people altogether. And isn't that ironic? Because the whole purpose of the Christian life, it's all about relationships. But unfortunately, if those relationships are a petri dish of bad feelings, 
for guilt and shame and remorse, another bad solution is I'm just not going to deal with people, and then I don't have to deal with how they make me feel. So and an even worse solution turns out to be uh, trying to turn off that conscience, trying to numb it down. That's the root of so many addictions. People that medicate themselves with pills or drugs or alcohol and other addictive behaviors, because then what they're trying to do is I'm just going to find that missing off switch for my conscience. I'm just going to drown it out, literally drown it out. And that's another bad solution. So if these things are not healthy and they do work, they don't work, it really leads the question then, what exactly should we do with bad feelings and negativity and when these things come as a result of what we do or don't do. And I think that really leads to the topic of sorrow. Because there's two kinds of sorrow that we mentioned here in our worship bulletin. There is a godly sorrow, but it's different than a worldly sorrow. And this is where hopefully part of the solution for our guilt and shame can come by recalibrating our conscience. Because we do need a conscience. Thank God for that. But we, as long as we realize it's a separate thing from God himself, and God alone doesn't program it, we can at least calibrate it to make it closer to what God said. It's like if you're taking a trip somewhere and you have a road map, that map isn't going to do you a lot of good without a compass. If you don't know which way is north, you're going to get lost. If that map's upside down, you're going west thinking you're going east. But even worse, what if you have a conscience, or a, a compass rather, that's broken? They say the worst compass is the one that's only a couple of degrees off. It's like a rifle scope. You might, if that thing isn't perfectly dialed in, you might not notice it at 25 yards or even 50 yards, but when you go for the longer shots, that, the more you realize that thing is off just enough. It's the difference between a hit and a miss. The same with a broken compass. If it's only a couple of degrees off, you're almost going the right way, but the farther you go, the farther away you're going to get. If if it was 180 degrees off, you'd realize it right away. But if it's almost right, you're going to trust it. And that's the problem with a conscience that's not completely calibrated. And the problem with sorrow is not all of our sorrow is godly. A lot of it is determined by the world. And I love this verse we put in here out of John 16 where it says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. That is a great passage, and there we could spend literally a week on what this thing is saying. Not going to do that. <laughs> we have lunch. <laughs> but uh, 
there is so much going on in this simple verse. I just love this because it, it boils things down to the most critical element. What this is telling us is that the function of the Holy Spirit is to expose where, not just where we're wrong, but where the world is wrong. See, the world, ironically, is very religious. There's all kinds of religion out there. And I love what Malcolm Smith said about television one time. He says, you do realize it's all religious programming, right? (laughs) It's just the religion of the world is secular humanism. I am God. God isn't God. I am. But it's all religious messages. And where the world is really wrong, it's wrong about three things. One of the things it puts in our head is it has to do with sin. When the world talks about sin, it's talking about ours, isn't it? All those things you do wrong. All those things you don't do right. All the things you should have done instead. But the problem with that is like we talked about the other day. All of this information makes us sin conscious and not sun conscious. We don't focus on God. We focus on ourselves and our behavior. So where the world is wrong, and by the way, this passage talks about what is right with God, not what's wrong. Because the truth about sin, what is the real sin in this world? See, if you remember, Christ one time warned about what he called the unpardonable sin. You remember what it was? The one sin that can't be forgiven. It was called in the King James, blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Okay, what's that mean? Really what it boils out to is a rejection of God as expressed through his Son and connected to him through the Spirit. One God, three persons. But what we're really doing, the one sin that can't be forgiven is simply not grabbing that lifeline. And it's not that it can't be forgiven because it's so bad. Just the the opposite. The reason that can't be forgiven is because God is the only solution. And if you bat away God, you bat away the solution. That's why it's unpardonable. Not because it can't be, but because we won't take the medicine. An example of that, let's say that some horrible epidemic or pandemic broke out in the country and people all over the country were getting sick and dying from this horrible new disease. So a bunch of doctors and scientists get together and they invent a cure for it. And it's a simple cure. All you need to do is go to this place and get a shot. That sounds pretty good. Oh, and by the way, word association, when I hear the word shot, You know, I don't think of like a needle. I'm just, oh, a shot. (laughs) I went to the doctor the other day, you know, you need a shot. I'm going, oh, don't mind if I do. (laughs) He pulls out a needle. I say, what's that for? (laughs) But you have some horrible disease and you just need to line up and get a shot and you'll be fine. But what if there was a group of people that refused that cure? refused to take that shot and get cured of this disease, and then they ended up dying from it. It leaves the question, what killed them? Did they die of the disease, or did they die of their own hand because of their stubborn refusal to take the medicine? 
both answers are right. You could build a case either way. But personally, I would say that they are responsible for their own death, not the disease, because the disease had a cure. They just didn't take the cure, and that's on them. So you see, the real sin, if you will, in God's eyes, is simply a severing of a relationship with him. That's the sin. That's the root problem. It's not the wrong things we do. I remember I heard a story one time of a uh, Sunday school teacher was teaching this lesson to little kids, and they, the lesson was on uh, forgiveness of sins. And just to make sure that she got the teaching right at the end of the class, she said, okay, now, what's the first thing we need to do in order to be forgiven for our sins? And it was really quiet for a while, and finally this boy in the back of the room raises his hand and goes, Sin? <laughs> yes, you can't be forgiven if you don't commit them. <laughs> he was right. But, but that's an example of how the real thing that we need is the right solution. The solution for sin isn't to not do wrong. We all do wrong. But as long as we have a right relationship, there's hope. We're not helpless, we're not hopeless, we're powerless. There's a difference. And we have a source of power if we make the connection. So anytime that our, we hear the word sin and we start to look at ourselves as the problem instead of looking at God as a solution, that good thing has been used in a bad way. The other thing it says is we're wrong about uh, righteousness. because. Again, it's the same as with the sin. When we talk about righteousness, we focus on ours, not his. See, the truth is Christ was righteous, and that's why he walked out of the grave. Unlike every other religious leader, be it Confucius or Mohammed or Buddha or you name it, Gandhi, all one have one thing in common. They, you can find their graves somewhere. They buried them. They're still there. Jesus, on the other hand, walked out of that grave and ascended to heaven. Where's Christ? Seated at the right hand of the Father. So where does that put us? Same place, because we're connected to him. And that makes all the difference, because it's not self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And that's why we can put our hope in him. And the third thing we get wrong about is judgment. And he says, well, the world is wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Wait a minute, I thought I'm the one that stood condemned. Because isn't the point of punishment that I'm going to get punished? No. See, who's getting punished in this passage? The prince of this world. Who's that? You know? <laughs> but... Uh, you know, that's the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Christ didn't come to judge us because there's two different judgments mentioned in the Bible. The judgment of Christians is not a judgment to see if you make it to heaven or not. That's behind us. The bar is behind us. You know the judgment we face as Christians? It's a judgment of reward, not a judgment of punishment. It's not a test to see, okay, you lived your life. Did you make the grade? We know we did. 
We made it when we repented and got right with him. So the true judgment is a good one because God is, Christ is coming to judge evil, to do away with evil, not to do away with us. And that's where when we get into this then, there's really one form of goodness in the world. God is good. And to the degree that we have God, we have good. And when we do wrong, the solution is really simple. Yes, sometimes there is guilt. Sometimes there's shame. And you see, we can visit these things without living there. So the idea, I think, when it comes with sorrow is we can listen to it. Just don't live in it. It's kind of like... uh you know, the a right solution for a problem. I walked in the house the other day and the smoke detector is going off. Not like house is on fire, but when the batteries go dead and some smoke detectors, they let out that annoying pinging sound, that beeping. And not only was it bothering me, but it was scaring the wife's house cats and they're freaking out. So I take the battery out. <laughs> it's what you do, right? Now I think what you're supposed to do is replace it. <laughs> But all I want is the annoying sound to go off, so I take the battery out. Isn't that kind of a test for rednecks, too? If you've ever taken the batteries out of your smoke detectors for the kids' toys on Christmas, (laughs) might be a redneck. (laughs) Who hasn't done that, though? (laughs) Ooh, batteries. So, but I think, again, the, the bottom line is we can listen to these things without living it. Conscience is neither good nor bad, it just is. And sometimes we need to listen to it, sometimes we need to recalibrate it, and sometimes we need to ignore it, because what we really need to follow is the truth. And to and to to realize where the world sometimes and what we've been taught is wrong. But the one thing that's never wrong is God. We can bring the worship team up and we'll close us out and thank you all. said that we know that we have truly received your grace when our prayers change from please to thank you. And today we just want to echo the words of Hebrews and say thank you that we can now approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.